Three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, I, I can't with some of these people. Christ. Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 19. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, well, just about everything, ranging from technology and psychology to nutrition to politics and so much more. This week, we are going to be doing a deep dive into technology. I know we discussed the addictiveness of cell phones back in episode two, where I talked about our reliance on phones and social media to keep us from being bored and how Buddhism could help you find peace with that. So if you haven't listened to episode two, feel free to go back and listen to that. This week, we'll be taking that conversation one step further, exploring how companies like Facebook and Instagram engineer in moderate behavioral addictions into their products, including the same strategy that casinos use to keep you at the slot machines all night. Why turning off your notifications, deleting addictive apps, or even taking a digital Sabbath will not remedy your distress about your phone usage why you should pledge to stop hitting the like button on social media, and finally, how to be more intentional with your phone use and get back some of that autonomy that has been taken away from you. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Keep those emails coming, guys. NervousHabitsPodcast.gmail.com. NervousHabitsPodcast.gmail.com. Did get some some pretty great feedback about the episode I did with uh, my friend Stephanos back, episode 17 on aging, spe- say sex oration, and money, um, and continuing to get uh, excellent feedback about the um, episode I did with my father uh, last week, the Father's Day special um, with Jay Rosen talking about his life experiences and um, you know his his view on the generational differences between baby boomers and millennials. I uh, do have a couple emails I want to share with you here, uh, most mostly in regards to episode 17 with Stephanos. First one is from Mitchell, no last initial. Uh, <laughs> Mitchell writes, Ricky. I just listened to the Aging in Space episode, thought it was really good. Your guest sounded authoritative, good back and forth on space, good pop science, responded mostly to the money segment. A plus work, bring your guest back in the future to talk about how to invest. Thanks so much, Mitchell. We're, we're actually definitely going to bring Stefanos back if we can. We know he's a busy guy, what with launching satellites into orbit and, and whatnot, but um, definitely think that the... Uh, the money segment laid a, a, a solid foundation on, um, you know, providing viewers with a, uh, listeners with a background on, you know, what money is, what the Federal Reserve is. But in terms of additional direction and instruction on how you might invest stocks or mutual funds, I think that would be uh, really useful. So, going to look into bringing our guest back to discuss that in a future episode. Got another email here from our friend, uh, resident podcast listener, Brian Varnson, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, Brian writes, a couple of my thoughts on episode uh, 17. I think he wrote 18 uh, by accident. Um, When you mentioned the intrinsic value of money during your last segment, it made me think of the days of gold and silver certificates where money was actually tied to physical quantities of precious metals, i.e. could redeem bills for a certain weight of metals. Now it's basically toilet paper, LOL. Um, yeah, that's, that's an, an interesting aside there. Although, to be fair, you missed a potential shameless cr- plug for cryptocurrency. 
Episodes of hyperinflation and loss of faith in currency has stoked some communities to adopt crypto for relative stability. Venezuela is poignant example today. Uh, before I finish your email, Brian, we actually did that on purpose. We will potentially be exploring crypto in a future episode, um, potentially in the episode where uh, you know, we have Stefanos talk about investment. Um, didn't want to, you know, breeze through it because I think that cryptocurrency is completely shaking up the the entire financial landscape with how people, um, you know, purchase goods and services. So uh, did not omit that unintentionally, but but appreciate you bringing it up. Um, and then Brian's email uh, finish, uh, concludes with, also when Ricky posed the question, should Americans be saving? or preparing for a potential recession, my immediate knee-jerk response was people should always be saving to some degree in, in any environment, and that average Joe probably doesn't have enough of their net worth tied to equities that will drop that precipitously in the short term. Overall, quality episode per usual. Fair points all around, Brian. Um, thanks as always for the email. Really enjoy your uh, your commentary. And as I said, I'm gonna explore cryptocurrency in a future episode. So keep you know writing those emails, guys. Uh, does not have to be super long or descriptive like those two. Can just be you know a hey, uh, listen to this topic, enjoy this topic, or suggestion for something else. Suggestion for a guest if there's someone who you think you know or you've heard of who might be a, a decent guest. Um, we're going to try to, to scale up with the guests, kind of branch out to people outside of my life who might be um, more authorities in the field. So uh, as, you know, the podcast gains more traction and, you know, um, we grow a little bit, we might be able to bring in some, um, you know, uh, decently um, reputable folks. So continue to listen. And as I said, um, feel free to, to share uh, feedback as always. So let's dive into the segment today on cell phone addiction and digital minimalism. This is something that I kind of scratched the surface of in episode two, but I do want to flesh it out in greater detail uh, because this is a topic that I'm extremely passionate about. And it seems like everyone has an opinion one way or another on cell phone use, <clears throat> which is ironic because <clears throat> all of us are flaming hypocrites. Um, since, you know, we're all tethered to our phones and no one, really no one with the exception maybe of Jay Rosen, as you heard from the last episode, no one is immune um, to the allure of cell phones. And just to provide some context to set the scene for you guys, you know, we, we spend all day in 2019 staring at screens. We're checking emails on our work computer. We're checking texts on our commute home on our cell phone. We're scrolling through Twitter and Instagram while we eat lunch and dinner. We're, uh, you know, reading books on our Kindles. We're playing games on our iPads. And, you know, we come home to relax at the end of the day by watching a movie or TV. There's no environment that is safe from, you know, from, from screens. Even the bathroom, you know, used to be you just go to the bathroom and, you know, a quick thing. You see people um, on the men's side, people, you know, standing at a urinal that are peering down at their cell phones. And obviously this is, this is alarming um, because what the author of a, a book called Crazy Busy, which I may have mentioned in the past, what he calls this, Edward Harrell Hallowell, he calls this screen sucking, which is the idea that, you know, no matter where we go in our lives, we're, our eyes are fixed on one manner of screen or another. And if you're anything like most people, you spend more than five hours a day on your computer, including using it after 10 p.m. on 40% of days. Uh, using 50, more than 56 apps and web, websites a day and switching between them more than 300 times 
and picking up your phone at least 60 times and spending four and a half hours using it a day. Those are just average statistics um, that I got, you know, from uh, you know, you know, from a database on technology use in America um, in modern day. And the problem isn't just sheer usage of technology. It's really how digital technologies lump together the good with the bad, like some sort of omnibus bill. Because, you know, we can't deny that technology is useful in so many ways that we've talked about time and time again on the pod. Communicating with friends over long distances, staying in touch with family, connecting with new people, um, dating or even professionally, getting around with Google Maps or requesting a car with Uber or Lyft, um, you know, reviewing restaurants. I mean, really any potential utility there is an app for. And I think that it would be naive of us to say that cell phones did significantly more harm than good, um, given that there is a lot of utility to uh, you know what what the cell phone and, and what this technology provides us. But what we've seen lately, and I would say really in the last one to two years, is a growing concern and anxiety um, from people who who are who are perplexed by their phone usage, who feel like they're missing out on real-life endeavors from their phone time, from preoccupation with the screen time feature on Apple, which if you don't know, if you go to settings on your iPhone, it tells you not only how, how much time you're spending on your phone each day, but um, the amount of, t- you know, the number of times you're uh, clicking on lock on your phone, you, you know, your pickups, and as well as which apps you're devoting the most time to. Uh, people are actually joining phone addiction support groups. Um, there's a sense of overwhelming exhaustion from these devices. And if you were to look at a graph of like cell phone usage um, overall, I think that you know in the last few years, we're, we're reaching a point where we're growing and growing and growing the percentage of time that we're on a phone every day. And now we're starting to kind of plateau where people are, are pulling back in, you know, and, and asking themselves, kind of reflecting, is this good? Is this healthy? Um, and, you know, I think it's 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 very self-aware of most people um, to have this this perspective. And, you know, the, the debilitating nature of um, overuse of phones, it's it's not even just mental or psychological. Physically, you know, there there are times, I'm sure many of you have felt this before, where you feel nauseous from staring at a screen. You get a headache. Your eyes hurt. Your brain is just sick of it. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I'm describing this, I'm like, you know, recalling episodes in the last few weeks where I've, I've been, you know, physically almost ill from staring at my phone or staring at screens so much. Um, and that's a concern. And most importantly, you guys, there's this overall sense of creeping lack of autonomy. People are feeling like they don't have control over their thoughts and feelings and that they're at the mercy of their phones and at the mercy of the developers at Apple and Facebook and you know Instagram behind these phones. So there is research out there. I mean, I don't want you to, you know, I'm making all these sweeping generalizations um, on, you know, how people uh, how phones affect their mood and, and, you know, their mindset. But there is research out there that looks at whether or not social media actually makes you happier. And the research is two-sided. I mean, on the one hand, you have research studies that have shown that social media use does make people happier, does fulfill you to some degree. On the other hand, there are research studies that show that using social media makes people feel more lonely and depressed and unhappy. So how can these two conflicting, um, you know, set of facts be true? And what seems to be happening, and this is something that um, that 
a guy named Cal Newport expounds upon in his book, Digital Minimalism, which we're going to spend the bulk of the podcast getting into. But what Cal Newport says in Digital Minimalism is what seems to be happening is it's not so much that the specific thing that you do when you're on a social media app makes you unhappy. It's that the usage of these apps on the whole is keeping you away from real-world communication. It's reducing the amount of time you spend with old-fashioned conversation or seeing someone in person, actually making some sort of real sacrifice of your time to spend time with someone. So the reason why using more social media is making people feel more lonely is that it's pushing out old-fashioned interactions, which we as humans need to be fulfilled. And our brain does not accept the digital equivalent as a comfortable and reasonable substitute. I mean, we think that we're being social because we're clicking like a lot and we're leaving comments on people's social posts, but our brain, which was formed through hundreds of thousands of years of social evolution, does not internalize this as social behavior at all. I mean, it, again, I really want to emphasize that we, you know, this, this internal paradox, this contradiction, we think we're being social because we're clicking a bunch of stuff on our phones while we're sitting on the toilet or in our bedrooms by ourselves. But our brain, you know, physiologically, we don't, we don't feel that social, um, you know, that, that social satisfaction and, and we're left feeling lonely and empty. And so again, you know, you think that being on your phone all the time, clicking like and hearts and thumbs up is a form of, of connection but the brain, you know, experiences this as, as like a cognitive dissonance because we, we as animals, as social creatures, have never in hundreds of thousands of years of existence experienced this as socialization. So how the hell did we get here and where do we go from here? And to answer that and to, you, you know, really, really um, flesh out solutions to this issue, I want to get into the book Digital Minimalism um, by Cal Newport. Uh, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World uh, is a book that helps people reframe how they use technology um, and really bring it into the realm of conscious awareness. And this guy, Cal Newport, he studied this issue for years. He did extensive research on literature and experiments. He talked to focus groups and creators of social media platforms, the, you know, the people behind um, Facebook and, and who invented the like button, as well as consumers of social media platforms in order to understand you know, how serious this issue is and, and um, potential remedies. And the first thing that Cal found was for many people, the issue was, and I'm, I'm quoting I'm quoting Cal Newport here, for many people, the issue was the overall impact of having so many different shiny bubbles pulling so insistently at their attention and manipulating their mood. So you have, if you, if you want to visualize this, you have, you know, a consumer who's si- sitting at a chair and you have this, this tugging from all directions um, from you know these apps and, and trying to completely monopolize the person's attention. And we've talked many times, uh, not just in episode two, about how attention is the, the most precious resource, um, your attention and how these, these apps are completely domineering um, you know what you give your attention to. And Cal Newport says, the urge to, tech, to check Twitter, for example, becomes a nervous twitch that shatters uninterrupted time into shards too small to support the presence necessary 
for an intentional life. This urge to check, it's, it's a nervous twitch. It's like an itch that you just have to scratch. It's an addiction, you guys. It's an, and, and we've become conditioned through social learning and repetition and habit formation that when we see a notification, we just check it. And when we hear that ding, our ears perk up. What was that? What was that? I can't check my phone. What? What was that? I bet you guys can relate to being in a crowded room and hearing or and immediately you check your phone. Even if it's, you know, someone else. Sometimes people even imagine it. There's, um, I mean, there's there's phantom vibration syndrome, which is like kind of like phantom limb syndrome. People who, who have, uh, you know, limbs limb amputated and they feel like, um, their, uh, you know, their nerves kind of imagine that the limb is still there, that they feel a tingling at the end of their fingers when they don't have a hand. People, you know, feel that their, their phone is vibrating in their pocket even when it's not there. I mean, our, our headspace, our attention is so hyper-focused on the phones that, you know, you're always feeling like you can hear or see that it's there, even when it's not. And to go back to my question from earlier, how did we get here? I want to I want to trace back, you know, how this got to be the the magnitude of an issue as it is. And Cal talks about in in the book how he spoke to one of the original project leads on the iPhone back when it was released to the public in 2007. And what he emphasized was Steve Jobs's vision, like with most of Steve Jobs's uh, you know, visions, was taking something that people already valued and saying, "I can make the experience even better." So the idea behind the original iPhone, it wasn't to create this this you know versatile device that people would use for uh, you know maps and um, and playing games and dating. No, 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 no. The idea behind the iPhone was twofold. It was one going to be a better iPod to listen to music, and two, it's going to be a cell phone. Um, so ideally, it's just you know Steve Jobs envisioned it as a phone that played music. And he wanted to do each of these two things better than anyone had else ha- had ever done before. Um, and if you actually go back and look at the original keynote address where Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, it's not until about 30 minutes into it where he even starts talking about the internal features, the communication features. The first 30 minutes were just focused on the features of the iPod to play music and the phone to you know call people because that's what he had in mind. There was no app store. There was no, you know, Tinder or Twitter or Instagram. In fact, Steve Jobs was troubled by the idea of letting third-party apps run on the phone. He didn't want to, you know, tarnish the phone with third-party apps. It was supposed to be an adequate phone with a really good music player. That was the iPhone back in 2007. And even as late as 2007, this idea that we would be constantly checking a screen, that, that didn't exist. That wasn't on anyone's radar. It wasn't really until the large social media giants figured out how to make money from people looking at a screen that we really saw this drastic shift towards the world that we see today in which people are constantly engaging with these forms of technology. And the first company to figure this out and the company that really, for lack of a better you know phrase, fucked everyone over was Facebook. And there's been so much written about um, you know how Facebook took this this basic premise of an iPhone and, and expl- or social media and exploited the hell out of it. Uh, so I, I don't want to rehash it too much, but in case you don't know, 
Facebook around that time, they weren't making a ton of money off their browser-based platform, off, off you know, accessing the, the website from a computer. So they said, we have to get more aggressive about trying to monetize our users. That's when they realized that the shift to mobile, accessing Facebook on a phone when you're not behind a computer, that was the way to do it because people had their mobile devices with them at all times. They could, in theory, get a lot more engagement, which they needed because if you're using Facebook more, they get more data about you. And that's more time to show you ads. And, you know, we talked about that uh, in episode 10 where you, you know, we went into, uh, into privacy. Facebook makes money the more you look at their, um, you know, their platform, the more you use it. So the key was, how can we get people to take Steve Jobs' gorgeous, state-of-the-art iPhone and iPod out of their pocket 100 times a day and click on our app and, and look at it? That was, that was Facebook's goal you know, 10 plus years ago. And they realized what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to engineer in moderate behavioral addictions into our service. That is literally, you know, the conclusion that Facebook came to. And I mean, Cal, Cal Newport verifies this from, you know, conversations with um, some of the, the founders, some of the people that were in the room for those conversations. And, you know, that's where you start to see that these apps really take off with features that were created mainly to exploit psychological vulnerabilities and its users to try to get people to obsessively and compulsively check this so they could create the revenue numbers that Facebook needed in order to show investors that they were making enough money to go public. I mean, it it really was Facebook that got this ball rolling, which is why anyone who used Facebook back, you know, in, in the early... 2000s has this split experience where, you know, they have an old memory of Facebook being something they would sometimes log into on their computer, much like MySpace. Um, and, you know, maybe they check once a week or so, maybe every day if they were, uh, you, you know, a consistent user. And this new memory of people obsessively and compulsively using it, checking their notifications, you know, a uh, hundred times a day, liking videos, sharing posts posting photos. What happened in between the first experience of Facebook and the second experience of Facebook is that Facebook figured out, okay, we can engineer in this moderate behavioral addiction, make this thing compulsive, and we will make a lot more money. And once they had this idea, other companies, you know, like Twitter um, and Instagram, who Facebook later acquired, sort of jumped on this bandwagon and did the same thing. And I want to stick with Facebook for another moment because, as I said, they really laid the groundwork for this whole movement. Facebook was interested in exploiting these psychological vulnerabilities. And we know this for a fact because of whistleblowers like Tristan Harris, who used to work for the company and became a whistleblower, started writing about, hey, you know, this is what we did at Facebook. And this is what's happening at all of these social media companies. And what was revealed through this whistleblower research is that hijacking the social apparatus in your brain is a good way to get people to keep looking back. So one thing they'll do, and, and this is what um, you know Cal Newport uh, writes about in, in setting the scene in, in di- the Digital Minimalism book, one thing they'll do is they introduce what, what are called social approval indicators into these apps. And a social approval indicator is some way that someone else can indicate to you that they thought about you or they were thinking about you. Um, the original structure of social media didn't have a lot of this. It was, 
you know, more you post something and people see it, you know, here's a, a baby picture or a wedding photo and, and people will just, will, will just see that. There was no measure of, do you like it? Do you dislike it? Do you love it? Um, and then, you know, they added something called the like button and the like button meant that there was a social approval indicator for the very first time. Um, that way it was very easy for people to indicate to you that they were thinking about you. Um, you know, they see a baby photo or a wedding photo, or graduation photo, and they click like, and then you see, oh, you know, Dylan looked at this photo. Oh, you know, uh, Brittany saw this. And by adding more and more of these things, you know, they, they were able to really tap into that mechanism in our brains. Um, and they expanded upon that, obviously, with it used to be just the like button. And then in the last, I don't know, four or five years, then they added the love button and the, the surprised emoji and the sad emoji and the angry emoji. And these are all social approval indicators that, you know, let you know, you know, 20, 30, 40 people are, are looking at this right now. Um, and maybe, you know, by the presence, uh, the omission of someone, oh, like this person's not looking at it right now. Everything becomes public. Everything, and we haven't even talked about, you know, the messaging feature with with the whole scene function. Uh, maybe we'll get into that later. But the point is, Facebook created the like button, um, and you know, they began to add more and more things like facial recognition uh, software to auto tag photos. So when you take a, a photo on Facebook or Instagram, it can tell you, hey, our algorithms looked at this photo. We think this person is in there, so on and so on. You know, do you want to do you want to tag uh, Ricky? Click a button to say yes, and you know, I, I guess, I guess the question is, is why did they spend so much money to solve this this really difficult computer science vision problem? Is really because, and and, and I want to emphasize this, <clears throat> it was another stream of social approval indicators because they're looking for ways that people can can easily indicate that they were looking at you, and it's it, it's it's almost irresistible to do that, that if I click on this app, I might see an indication that someone was thinking about me. That's very hard to resist. And once they added this this uh, you know um, initial social approval indicator, usage minutes of the app skyrocketed. Because now, instead of it being something you signed on to once a day to see what was going on, you had a constant reason to keep checking. Maybe there's a new indicator. Maybe there's a new indicator. Then you add on onto that this idea of intermittent reinforcement, which some of you might have heard of, but it's the idea that sometimes when you click on it, there's nothing. And sometimes there's, there's a lot of, of likes and intermittent reinforcement, just, you know, just to kind of flesh it out. It's very common on Instagram, for example, where you post a picture and sometimes when you check it, there's no likes, but they'll build them up. So when you check again, you have 20 likes even though people were probably liking it already when you checked the first time, they'll hold those likes back because seeing that there's 20 hearts up here is a lot more like, oh man, I want to check again the next time, right? You, I mean, you, you post a picture, you refresh it, no one liked it. And as opposed to every, you know, every minute or two, a couple more people like it, Instagram will hold back, you know, rein in those likes. And then maybe you check it once, there's no one, you check it again, there's no one. And then all of a sudden there's 10 more likes. Then you check it again. There's no one checking, and then there's 20 more likes. I mean, they're doing this because of it, 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 intermittent reinforcement. This is the same mechanism behind gambling at a casino. You're sit, you're sitting at the slot machines all day, 
and you know you're you're uh, you know you're hitting the pulling the slots, pulling the slot, and then all of a sudden you get a big reward, and then the next time you get close, and then you get close, and then you get another big reward, and it's the unpredictability of the rewards that keeps people coming back and strengthens those addictive behaviors. So when you put these types of things together, these social approval indicators, and you know, these, this intermittent reinforcement and other strategies and other algorithms that are being exploited in order to, to maximize um, the addictiveness of this, it becomes almost impossible to avoid, much like cigarettes or drugs. And, you know, it's really, I, I feel bad when people are, are uh, seriously addicted to their phones or, or you know, and it's, it's not their fault because these devices, these technologies were created to be impossible to resist. Um, and I might have mentioned back in either episode two or 10, um, but there was a book called uh, Irresistible where they talked about where they talked about this. Um, I believe it was by Adam, yeah, Adam Alter. And you know, it's it's because the technologies have become really impossible to um, to resist. And you know, I, I talked back in episode 10 when we went into technology and privacy, exactly how these companies harvest information about you so they can sell you more targeted ads. You know, what are you clicking on? What are you not? What do you like? What don't you like? We can feed all this information into machine learning algorithms to digest you, as Jaron Linear says, into a gadget that can then be put into ad-making machinery. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff. And people involved, the founders of Facebook, have come out and spoken against it. Sean Parker was in the news. He was the president of Facebook in the early days. He came out and he said, um, this was last year, he said, uh, you're spending a lot, lot of time, Facebook is spending a lot of its time and resources to make their products as addictive as possible. Roderick McNamee, who was one of the original mentors of Mark Zuckerberg, he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post. He said he wished he never mentored Mark Zuckerberg, even though the company probably made him a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think. Can you imagine designing a product and, you know, the product being wildly successful, being worth tens of billions of dollars, going public and and um, you know changing the course of human history, and then saying, "I regret it. I regret being part of something so influential because its net effect was, you know, immensely negative." I mean, that is all the proof that that I think you need. Um, and you know, the reality is when you start manipulating and messing around with the social circuitry of your brain, it can cause a lot of problems because this is a very sensitive and very powerful portion of the brain. And, you know, people will alter their behavior, you know, because of how things are perceived online. People begin posting outrageous statements or beliefs to get lots of engagement and likes and comments, all because their serotonin system is being hijacked. I want to I want to emphasize that word hijack because some of you guys you know might be listening. Why does he keep using that same diction? Because it's literally being taken over, like you know something in, in Planet of the Apes, taken over by these these little visual uh, retweet and the heart counts. I want more. I want more. I want more, and it's never enough and every position that you have is pushed to the outer limits it becomes more extreme online because you want that social proof and you know i'm just i'm really scratching the surface of you know the the different features of um you know digital technology and 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 i alluded to to the whole messaging app and the whole scene function and i think this is another another way that um these you know another way that these 
uh, developers are engineering in behavioral addiction. The idea that when you send someone a message on Facebook or even on on Apple, um, I, I on the on the iPhone with read receipts, they can let you know, you know, if they've seen it or not. They can let you know if, um, you know, if 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 it's just sitting there unread or if they've clicked it and take it. And the result is you begin checking the messages more frequently in order to, you know, figure out, oh, is this person responding? And then once they have responded, there becomes a, a you know, an obligation to to write back. And again, you know, and, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but we did talk about the, the, the private, I mean, you don't have even the privacy to look at your phone without someone knowing that you're doing it, to go online without announcing to the whole world that you're online. And obviously, you can turn these features off. You can turn read receipts off on your iPhone. You can make it so that um, your friends on Facebook Messenger can't see when you're online. You can turn off read receipts on Facebook Messenger in general. You know, I, I've taken a lot of time to lay out the problems um, with digital addiction and digital overload. But just to kind of wrap wrap up the background of what's happening, this is why you're starting to see people take a step back and say, I'm not liking how social media is affecting my personal life. I don't feel like a good person when I'm on social media. I don't feel like this is who I am. You know, and, and I, I mentioned earlier that I'm predicting that um, you know, phone use in general is, is going to plateau and maybe go down. And I think part of the reason why is because of the attention that in the media, for example, being devoted to um, you know, cell phone addiction and you know, the, the negative impact of these, um, you know, of, of these companies and, and these whistleblowers that are coming out and, and speaking about you know, what's, what's happening behind the Iron Curtain. You know, there are, people recommend all sorts of remedies um, for what you can do about this. Let's say you're listening to this and you're you're sobbing into your hands because this sounds exactly like you, and you can't stop checking your phone. You know, if you're on the if you're taking a walk and you know, or, or you're on the toilet, or, or you're on the subway, or you're in the car, you're driving, and you just you can't stop. You need that dopamine rush. You need that reminder that there's something new. What the hell can you do? And there are a couple of of common remedies. Um, but none of them work. I mean, number one, you know, they say that you can delete apps from your phone that you're addicted to. You know, let's say you can't stop checking Instagram. Just take Instagram off your phone for a week or two. Um, you know, see if that helps. The reason why that doesn't actually, uh, you know, remedy the problem is you're not really getting at the addiction. You're just, it's, it's like, um, you know, it's like trying to go cold turkey from, uh, from smoking cigarettes. You're not, you know, you're not necessarily replacing it with anything. You're just more, um, you're just more trying to to force yourself not to use it anymore. And also, chances are, if you're addicted to Instagram, you're probably addicted to Twitter or um, or Facebook or maybe just like mindlessly googling stuff or maybe uh, games on your phones. Luckily, I don't I don't play any games, but I know that that that's you know those are are pretty addictive as well. Um, so chances are, if you delete Instagram, you're just gonna replace that addiction with a different app. Um, so deleting an app that you're addicted to, that doesn't help. The second thing that, that some people do to remediate this is taking a digital Sabbath, much like Jewish people do on Fridays, um, Friday to Friday evening to Saturday evening. Go a day without a cell phone, maybe once a week, maybe once a month. The issue, the issue with this is, again, once you get the phone back, you become as obsessed as ever. It doesn't tackle the root of the problem. You know, you you someone goes on a diet um, for five or six days a week, but then has a cheat day where they eat, where they binge on you know Domino's pizza and, and Hostess cupcakes. 
they're going to gain all that weight back. I mean, you can't, you can't 70, 80% of the time behave um, one way and then allow yourself to be gluttonous on one day a week because that's not addressing the root of the problem. And the last thing that people do um, to handle uh, digital addiction is they they get a, a second phone um, and and there's there's something called a light phone out there. It looks sort of like a calculator. Um, it's a small thin phone with nothing on it but numbers. You can't check uh, your social media. You cannot send text messages. There are no third party apps. There's no camera. There's nothing but a phone to make calls. Um, and so many people buy this light phone as their second phone. So that way, when you go out, instead of having this bulky you know, distraction prone smartphone in your pocket that you're checking every, every five seconds, you just have this light phone, which you can use to make a call in case of emergency. Cause, they, cause let's be honest, that's why a lot of people justify bringing their cell phones out with them all the time because of emergency. Right. Um, and so you have this light phone and maybe, you know, m- maybe that'll suffice as, as a reasonable alternative. And the light phone was so successful. It actually sold out online when it was first released. You can go to the lightphone.com um, to check it out. And on the uh, you know on the website you can learn more about you know the the uh, the reason why um, why the founders uh, actually believe in this and if we I mean I mean you, you know um, I'll read you like like a, a blurb. So the founders were much like Cal Newport and much like myself were also you know very vigilant of what you know, cell phone use was doing to our lives. And on their website, they, they write this. Um, this is from the lightphone.com slash about. Our time and attention are the two most important things that we too often take for granted. So many products are claiming to make our lives better. They are engineered to keep us hooked. They are becoming, they are being built and funded because we will become addicted to them, not because we need them. You see, we are human and we are vulnerable. Being more connected couldn't possibly make us any happier. Our phones have become our nervous habit. That's a plug for the podcast, guys. <laughs> our invisible crutch. We find ourselves reaching for them without thinking. And I'll get into that in a moment. We love their illusion of productivity and stimulation that is socially acceptable to abuse. God, this is well written. Multitasking is a myth. It is addictive and exhausting. It is glorified procrastination. When we consume so fast, there is no way for us to appreciate anything. And appreciation gives our lives meaning and purpose. This is why we built a phone that's designed to be used as little as possible. It's a casual second phone that encourages us to leave our smartphones behind from time to time. Beautifully written. That's from the lightfo.com slash about. And that's really the the reason why they developed this this phone. Um, And... The issue with the life phone is people will still, again, it's much like the, the second remedy. The issue is people will still use the first phone 70, 80% of the time and then bring the life phone on weekends. You're not, it's a, supp, you know, the life phone's a supplement. It's not a substitute. So you're not solving the problem. Um, and I do want to mention as, as kind of a, a, a side note, I liked what, what it said right here with, um, in this about section, we find ourselves reaching for them without thinking. And I think, um, we're going to talk about intentionality later in the podcast. I think that is maybe the, the biggest problem with cell phone use in 2019 is we're reaching for our phones without thinking. It becomes a a built in instinct that at any moment, whether you're on the phone and there's a lull in the conversation or you're eating dinner or you're taking a walk, you reach into your phone to check for that instant gratification. And that's the problem, you guys. Um, so that for sure, um, was, was a takeaway. And, and I like, I also like what it said about how it's socially acceptable to abuse the phone. That is so 
so uh, you know aptly put in that people just don't give a shit if if you're sitting at, at, at brunch and everyone's on their phone or if you're at you know a bar and and you know someone whips out their phone or you're you know it, it's it's acceptable to be rude and and that's i think that's an issue as well so all right just to kind of summarize right there that's the three remedies that people have said to deal with digital addiction deleting apps or addicted to taking digital sabbath and the light phone none of them work and what cal newport says is we need to essentially scrub our entire philosophy almost wipe our memories as if we've never used a cell phone before completely retrain our minds on how to use phones pretend you know you were in back to the future and you went back to um you know uh, the 1980s or, or or jay's time in the 60s and 70s before cell phones even exist and then someone handed you a phone and you had to learn to use it and wire your circuitry um to to live with a phone habituate to it for the first time and that's what cal newport wants to do with digital minimalism this does not mean quitting phones forever he doesn't tell you to, to you know put your phone in a wastebasket and set it on fire it just means rethinking how we use them and so the whole basis behind um, this philosophy, digitalism, uh, digital minimalism, he defines it as a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. I'm going to read it one more time. Digital minimalism is a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. Carefully selected and optimized activities. That is what the phone is used for, that and nothing else. So does this mean deleting your social media accounts and giving up your smartphone? Maybe. But rather than going cold turkey, and assuming your willpower will, will keep you going strong, practicing digital minimalism allows you to choose. You and only you will choose what you bring into your life. And so Cal recommends that to start, you have to do what's called a 30-day digital declutter. And it's almost like if you've seen that, that show on Netflix, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. It's like that, but with your phone. You know, you got you to gotta look at every app and, and ask, does this bring you joy? Um, and, and the key is joy. It's not, it's not, you know, you, it's not, is it useful? Because everything's useful. Remember, good and bad are wrapped together like some sort of omnibus bill. It's, does it make you happy? Does it add something to your life? So you set aside a 30-day period during which you will take a break from optional technologies in your life. And optional means anything, this is how Cal, Cal defines it, anything where it's temporary removal would harm or significantly disrupt the daily operation of your professional or personal life. So work email is not optional, but Twitter, for example, is. And during these 30 days, where, where again, you're going to remove, take a break, remove all these apps from your phone or, you know, I mean, two options, either remove all the apps from your phone and use it almost like a light phone uh, with just, just phone calls, no text messaging, or just put your phone away, uh, you know, for good for 30 days. And during this break, you're going to explore and rediscover activities and behaviors that you find satisfying and meaningful. And by doing this, uh, by undergoing a deep dive into what matters to you, you're going to make technology work for you, not the other way around. You're going you're gonna to get back that, 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 that autonomy that was stolen for you by those creators, by those developers um, who I mentioned to you earlier. And then once the 30 days are up, you can reintroduce the optional technologies that you want back into your life if you determine that the value it brings you, if you determine 
the, that it brings you value and how specifically you can use it to maximize that value. And I want to emphasize, this isn't a simple tech detox. This isn't a short break. This isn't a sabbatical. It's meant to be a total reset to your relationship with technology. Imagine like a cleanse, like like a juice cleanse, or you know, if you're going through a breakup, a cleanse from a person. That is what you know the digital minimalism 30 day declutter is. And you know, when you do decide at the end of the 30 days to bring optional technologies back into your life, Newport says you should create rigid operating procedures around them. These are the rules under which, uh, the rules on how exactly you'll use them and when. This does not mean you can use everything you did before just in a lesser fashion. It doesn't mean when you finish your diet that you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and you gain back all the weight that you burned off the last 30 days. That That's not what digital minimalism is. The key is, and this is really important, you have to be more intentional with how you're using technology. You have to be more intentional. And if you're zoning out, and every podcast, I say this because I know, you know, rambling a lot, there's a lot of information here. If you're zoning out and your mind is wandering and maybe, you know, during the podcast, you look down at your phone to take a, check a text message um, and you're not grasping any of this, the one thing I want you to take away from this is the most important part of digital minimalism is you need to be more intentional with how you're using the technology because right now, oftentimes we pick up our phones intending to jot down a shopping list in notes. And then we spend 30 minutes scrolling through our best friend's, ex-boyfriend's Instagram photos, wondering where the time went by. We didn't set out to go on Instagram or Facebook when we picked up our phone to check for directions, but a notification popped up and we clicked on it. And next thing we knew, an hour went by. To be intentional in your phone use means to only use your phone for what you intend it to be used for. When you pick it up, Say out loud, I am using my phone to send a text message and that is it. If you're writing the text message and a you know notification that you have 20% off Lyft comes up, don't open Lyft. Like, ignore that. Understand there will always be notifications and apps and companies trying desperately to grab hold of your attention so you click on their app. I actually turn notifications off for many apps, I recommend you do the same. Even if you don't do a 30-day declutter, even if it sounds like way too much work, go into your settings on your iPhone, go to notifications, and turn push notifications off for all apps. Because I mentioned earlier the creeping lack of autonomy that people are feeling in 2019 with their cell phones. And I think the the biggest harbinger, the biggest contributor of that is the notifications. Because a notification is essentially telling you, I don't care what the hell you're doing right now, you're going to pick up your phone, you're going to look at it right now. And... By turning push notifications off, you only check your phone when you decide, okay? And that attentionality is a big part of it. And, you know, the whole concept of a notification is pretty misleading because, as I said, it deprives you of the control of when you want to check, you know, the New York Times or, or the Wall Street Journal, whether you're having dinner with your family, you're on the toilet. If you hear that ding, if you see that red banner, that's your pre-programmed cue to click on the bubble to check your app. And there... There was so much, and and I'm not sure if Cal Newport went into this or I'm thinking of Adam Alter and Irresistible, but there's so much that went into the notifications, you know, the even like the color on Facebook. Um, I believe the the notifications on Facebook were, were originally blue or, or green, and the developers realized this doesn't seem urgent enough. This doesn't seem like it, it demands, you know, your attention. So they made the notifications red, 
And they added a sound and they added a big bubble in order to really, you know, press you to check that app. And how, pre- how refreshing would it be to not have to deal with those notifications? So as I said, you know, go ahead and turn them all off, even if you don't do the 30-day declutter. And better yet, you know, if I'm talking about alternative solutions to people who are a little, you know, hesitant on digital minimalism, you can just delete Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook from your phone and just use it from your web browser. You know, that way you don't feel the need to check it while you're on the move, you know, while you're at work or whatever. You can just check it every night at your desktop like you do with your emails or your credit card statement or if you're me, your fantasy baseball team. Just every night at 9, 10 o'clock, whenever, you know, as you're winding down, you're watching Netflix, open up your Twitter, see, you know, or Instagram, see if you have any new messages and any new posts or whatever that, that intrigue you. And that'll be that. So that's that's a potential alternative um, as well. But but you know, like I said, the, deleting an addictive app or two doesn't really get at the heart of the problem. So you know, you can do that. I recommend the dirty thirty day uh, detox. So as I said, you know, uh, at the end of the thirty day period, you have to ask yourself if you want to reintroduce an app or a social media platform, and you do that by asking if it directly supports something that you deeply value. So much like with the Pathfinder. When you undergo an introspective process like this, at the foundation of this process is understanding your values, is understanding what's important to you and what you want to spend your time on. You need to justify yourself whether or not something deserves to be back, whether or not an app deserves your attention. I want you to visualize, maybe I'm in like law school mode, so so I'm thinking about uh, jurisprudence, but visualize a courtroom in your head and you're sitting at the judge's bench and Bear with me. I'm making this analogy up on the spot. Each app is called the witness stand, and you need to question the apps. So I guess it's kind of unconventional, like the judge is questioning the witness, but each app is called to the stand, and you know you have Google and Uber and Apple Maps and Twitter and Facebook and Tinder and Instagram, and you ask these apps, why should I leave you on my phone? What value do you strengthen in me? What do you add to my life? And, you know, they, they, you know, convincingly will tell you, well, you know, I, I help you connect with others. I, I, um, I sh- help you stay informed on the news. Um, I help you meet people to date. I help you get around. But then, and here's the key, guys, you have to cross-examine these apps. You got you to gotta ask them, what about the notifications? What about the addictive tendencies? What about the fact that I check my Instagram for social validation? It makes me feel self-conscious. What about the fact that seeing my friends' highlight reels on their Facebook makes me feel down? What about the fact that I can't stop swiping Tinder even when I'm working? What about the fact that when I pick up my phone to check my email, it's 9.10. When I put it down, it's 11.45. What about the fact that you're stealing five or six hours of my life every freaking day because I'm so addicted to you? And these apps will, you know, respond to the cross-examination. Oh, you know, that's, that's a fair point, but yada, yada, yada. The good outweighs the bad. Whatever they tell you. And then like a real judge, it's on you to make a decision on each app as to whether or not it has a net a net positive or negative impact on your life. And understand that every application has some positive value or else it wouldn't be popular. But you really, you have to really holistically consider the positive and the negative, you know, and, and if it's worth it because it's a zero-sum game. If something, you know, if you're spending time four or five hours a day on your phone, think about what you're not spending time doing. I'm sure you have, you know, everyone has hobbies. You like to cook. You like to dance. Um, you like to uh, to freestyle rap, um, whatever. And can you really afford five hours a day to be 
staring at a little screen when you could be perfecting yourself? Learn a language, for God's sakes. Um, I don't know. Uh, read a book. Oh my God, we haven't even talked about that. But as Cal explains, the fact that a piece of technology offers some value is irrelevant. The digital minimalist, that's you, <laughs> and me, deploys technology to serve the things they find most important in their life and is happy missing out on everything else. They don't care about FOMO. This is, I know you guys are thinking that this is overly idealistic, but you know, in an ideal scenario, the digital minimalist will say, I'm happy with the apps that support my values and everything else. Fuck it. I, I'm not concerned with it. And you're probably wondering, you know, let's say you try digital minimalism and it works for you and you feel like your life is getting much better and, you know, you're, you're able to reclaim that autonomy. What do you do with that emptiness in your life? The, the, the five hours in your day or, you know, the, the, just the empty time, a minute here on the train, a minute here when you're walking, you know, sitting at lunch. How do you fill that head, your headspace? And Cal, you know, gives a couple of, of, uh, of, of suggestions. First and foremost, we need to reclaim leisure and hobbies, he says. One of the reasons that we as Americans, and it's really not only an American problem, but, you know, uh, specifically Americans struggle with this. One of the reasons that we lean so heavily on digital technologies is that we've lost our hobbies and leisure our leisure activities. I mean, if you ask people, if you ask children or teenagers, you know, what are your hobbies? People are going to lie and they're going to tell you, you know, I like to play sports. Um, I like to, uh, you know, um, play an instrument. I like to do karaoke and maybe they do like it, but I mean, they're, they're not, they're, how they're spending their time is not reflecting their hobbies. Yeah. They like to play instruments, but they play, you know, the, the piano and the guitar one hour a month and they go on their phone, you know, five hours a day. So, I think that people don't don't really have hobbies anymore. And obviously, you know, I can see why. It's easier to scroll through a phone than read a book. It's easier that, to text than to go on a run or, or paint. But by reclaiming our, our leisure time for analog tasks, we can break free from the FOMO of digital technologies. And I mentioned in episode six, we talked about habit formation, the cue routine reward cycle, how you can't just cut out a routine because whatever, whatever the cue comes, you, you know, you need something to get that reward. If, if you bite your nails like me, when you're nervous, you need to, to, you know, sub in that behavior, biting nails. So whenever you feel nervous, you do something and then you get that reward of, of relief. So you need to look for that replacement for that dopamine rush you get from cell phones. And I am a firm believer in, in exercise, which <laughs> you guys obviously know very much. So God, if you're not running or going to the gym or playing sports, one or two hours a day, start doing that. You know what I mean? Like that's, you want to talk about dopamine rush? That's going to make you feel, um, you know, f- feel fantastic every single day. Uh, surround yourself with people. Join meetups. Meetup.com is is amazing. Um, there's always events going down in your city. If you go to the, you know, the, the city, just Google search, you know, Boston city calendar, New York city calendar. There's always stuff going on. Meet new people. Um, try new things, uh, you know, whether that be, you know, cooking class or painting or instruments or, or learning a language or, or building something or, or pottery. I mean, I just think people today are so comfortable, comfortable with the comfortable, with the familiar, with the routine. But what's the worst that can happen? You know, you, you go to a, uh, a birdhouse making class or something like that and you don't enjoy it. Okay, it's a cool experience. You know, at least you could say you say you did it. Um 
And in addition to reclaiming leisure, Cal says you need to spend more time by yourself, which is kind of confusing because he also says that the problem is we're spending too much time alone on our phones. But I guess what he means is you need to spend more time reflecting every day, uh, potentially like meditating, deep breathing, uh, yoga, whatever. So um, spend more time by yourself, but without your phones. Um, and, you know, that that leads into the second, um, you know, uh, response that he has to people who say, what am I going to do with the five hours a day? Um, spending time alone. Because, you know, so much of technology is designed to keep us connected. But having solitude, physical and mental solitude, that's important for thinking clearly too. I guess, you know, I guess what he's trying to call to mind is that like, um, that Henry David Thoreau, like Walden Pond experience where you leave your phone at home, go for a walk or, or, or you journal or, you know, just do something completely by yourself without, without checking social media. Um, so that's for sure, that would be a, um, you know, a, a reasonable um, alternative for how to fill that time. He also uh, suggests that you stop clicking the like bolt, uh, button both during your 30-day digital detox and after your 30-day digital de- uh, detox. And the problem with like, and this is my, this is not what what Cal said. This this is my reason why I don't like hitting the like button. I think like is the lowest possible level of engagement. Okay, I, say a friend gets engaged. Um, well, I guess that's kind of redundant. Uh, say, <laughs> say a friend um, has a child, right? Uh, and you see that, you know, there's an announcement on Facebook that this person had a baby and it's a beautiful boy. And most people just click like. 350 people click like. And this is a decent friend of yours. This is someone you've, you know, known for, um, you know, for, for most of your life. You want to share your well wishes for the baby being born. So you can, one... I'm going to I'm going to go in order of like the best to worst the the most valuable things to the least valuable things you could do. You could one, pay him or her a visit. Two, give him or him or her a phone call. Three, shoot him or her a kind note over text or even, you know, write a letter. Or four, you can leave a comment on their a public comment on their Facebook or Instagram post. But a like, you guys, a like is the cheapest possible form of acknowledgement of approval. It's the internet equivalent of the courtesy wave that you would give to the other driver that lets you make a left turn when, turn when he has the right, right away. Is that really how you want to treat a friend? Just a like? And, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, you know, an important event in your life. Maybe you get into college or, um, you know, or uh, you get married, whatever. Um, and you haven't talked to a friend in a long time and you just see that they like a comment or excuse me, they like the post. Part of you is wondering like, really? Like they, they couldn't have picked up the phone? They couldn't have sent me a message they, they couldn't have like gotten coffee with me that, that's all I am to them is a like just another like because there's no there's no um effort there's no initiative required to hit like you're scrolling down that news feed something pops up boom instinctively you click like likes are are, are limitless you can like 60,000 things if you want to and I didn't really by the way I didn't really talk about the infinite news feed but that's and I really should have. I omitted that, but that's another way that the um, the, the the developers and the app creators have made these uh, these apps so addictive and sucking up so much time is the fact that when you scroll down, there's no limit to the content, to the fact that at any point, you know, you just keep scrolling down and down and down and down and down and, down and you know looking at. Um, 
science posts the people have shared or, or cute dog photos or, um, you know, the highlight reel of their lives. And that's another way that he needs some time. But getting back to the whole like thing is, you know, there's no, there's no buy-in is anyone, anyone could do that is my point. So if someone matters to you, pay them a visit. So Cal Newport says, don't click like, and his exclamation for explanation for it. He writes that social media and digital communication, they've become digital versions of fast food. They're too easy to consume, yet they don't give us what we need to live a healthy, happy life. So instead of buying in to this to this whole like behavior, Cal suggests that we limit the performative aspect of these tools. You can use them to stay in touch and connect with loved ones as in, for example, sending a message or even writing a comment. I think that writing a comment he probably considers to be like the, the, the worst next to like, but you know, use certain aspects of them, but don't click your don't click like on every post. Um He's, I guess what he's trying to say when he argues not to click like is that just because you go through this digital declutter and you decide that Facebook and Instagram make your lives a hell of a lot better doesn't mean you have to use every feature of them. doesn't mean you have to use Messenger and posting photos and clicking like and leaving comments and sharing things. You don't have to do that. You could you could make, again, one of us says this, you can make the app work for you, not the other way around. Um, and finally, you know, he urges people to join the attention resistance. Um, and this kind of piggybacks uh, on, on what I just said, but he writes that reducing the number of entry points of a social media platform is an important part of being a digital minimalist. So either delete it from your phone, set limits. I think they might have um, they might have uh, limits on the iPhone under screen time where you can only use an app for like 20, 30 minutes. Set limits. You can block it on your computer if, if that's becoming an issue as well. Or you know treat it like a professional task, something that you can do as needed, but not more. So, you know, just, just kind of uh, summarize that when we're eliminating the four or five or reducing four or five hours a day um, that we're using our phones, you know, we can fill that time by reclaiming hobby and leisures, by spending time in physical and mental solitude, by not clicking like, and by joining the attention resistance. And, you know, be, I guess, set realistic goals. If, if right now you're using your phone four or five hours a day, and the idea of using it under an hour a day gives you anxiety. Don't like immediately go through this digital minimalism and, and want to make that jump. Be realistic. Maybe, you know, the first week um, during or after digital, digital minimalism, you go from four hours to three hours or even like four to three and a half. And the second week you go down to three. Um, it's, I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day. This is this is going to take a long time to, to re- uh, calibrate the way that you interact, the, the relationship you have with technology. So, you know, less, less is really more. And digital, digital minimalism, the philosophy is, is all about uh, defining not only what technologies you let in your life, but how you use them. And the key is understanding your true values to build your technology use around them. What matters to you? You know, is families important? Uh, you know, is, is your love life important? Is, um, is being a good friend important? Loyalty um, is your spirituality important? And become more intentional, more empowered, and more productive. Instead of like a Pavlovian response to buzzes and bings and notifications or succumbing to negative habitual check-ins, you become intentional on in your use. And that's the most important um, fact about this new um, digital minimalist mindset. Because it's not too late, guys. You know, some of you guys out there might might be hopeless about your addiction to technology, but it's really not too late to change 
to change this. I mean, our gen, my generation, the I guess I'm a millennial, you know, born in the early '90s. We lived what '92. We lived like 12 to 15 years without technology, and. I remember what life was like, and I talked about in episode two, you know, playing pick-up sticks with my sisters and jumping on rocks and using my imagination, and I've had days like that in my adult life, just playing games and hanging out and the cell phones in the other room, and life can be like that again, and if you're in the gener- the newer generation, um, I know we have some younger listeners out there, uh, you know, if you were born after 2000, geez, um, <laughs> very young, uh, then potentially... You've never known anything but cell phones. You know, if, if you grew up, if you were 12 and 13 in the last like five, 10 years, you've always had cell phones. That that might be harder for you, but it's still it's still possible to relearn what life can be like. And I choose to believe that it's not gonna get worse, that it's gonna get better. I I really I choose to believe that. And and I believe that the the cell phone can be harnessed for good rather than you know, something bad. Anyway, I recommend the book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World um, by Cal Newport. So just kind of summarize, I know we've, we've, we've been through a lot here uh, at the risk of, of being redundant. Uh, we talked about screen sucking and how um, omnipresent it is in, in our lives in 2019, um, about how, you know, the, uh, the folks who designed these apps engineered in moderate behavioral addiction, algorithms, the um, endless timeline, as well as intermittent reinforcement in order to exploit the social approval indicators and make us addicted to our phones. Um, we talked about how the, the remedies, deleting the apps, digital Sabbath, the light phone, how those really aren't, um, you know, panaceas, they're not going to solve the problem. Um, and then we went into the digital declutter, the 30 days uh, without the apps, and then asking one by one whether or not um, some, you know, an app actually brings, uh, you know, enhances a value, and then letting it back into your life, but using it intentionally, intentionality being the key there. So I have great news for you guys. We do have two exciting episodes coming up. Um, first of all, next week, or it, it may end up being two weeks. We're going to have a guest on to, descri- to discuss uh, nutrition. Um, we're going to dive into what it means to be a vegetarian, both from a nutrition standpoint. How exactly does one maintain a wholesome diet without the inclusion of meat, get enough protein and all that, and a philosophical standpoint, exploring the belief system of someone who rejects eating animals. Um, I'm also going to be releasing a second bonus episode in the next few weeks. Um, first one, it's, it seems like a, a lot of folks were interested in it. Um, so we're going to be getting the same two guests from the last bonus episode, get the band back together since all you enjoyed that so much. Um, two exciting episodes coming up next month um, on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been uh, Nervous Habits episode 19. We're one episode away from our 20th episode. Although this technically, if you count the bonus episode as episode 19, um, this was our 20th episode. But our real 20th episode is coming up um, soon. Uh, keep sending those emails on nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com, nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com. Also DM us on Instagram at nervousheavispodcast. I'm actually going to be heading uh, to Europe um, between this and the next episode uh, that's going to be released. So um, potentially, depending on what happens there, maybe do an episode in French. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it could be cool to do an episode like exploring the 
culture, European versus American culture, the lifestyle. Who knows, you know, what what that trip will bring me. But um, stay tuned. Uh, you know, send that feedback over. Um, nervous Podcast at gmail.com and on Instagram. And stay nervous, guys. Take care.